Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, and I'm ready for another podcast episode. Today's guest, we have Ben Lukanen, and he is a Ph.D. student and Michigan State University employee, and he has been doing a study on the decreased population of mallards in the Great Lakes region and um, a lot of other stuff too. I don't want to, I want to make sure I, I don't miss anything. Um, they also talk about the hybridization issue as well, which is crazy. Um, I did not know a lot of the information uh, we had on there um, that, that he shared with me. Did get to read some of those articles. So um, I will let you know that it's not great news. So we'll get to that. We'll get them on here, here in a bit. Um, I did want to mention as well, didn't, you know, some of the things you don't mention, don't think to mention um, or ask when he was live, but uh, he's, he went to Michigan State University, then he did his master's at Iowa State, then he came back for his PhD at Michigan State University. Um, did I say that all right? All, all that right? I think so. Michigan State University to Iowa State University to Michigan State University. Um, so um, he's definitely well-versed and um, the study, well, I will, I'll leave that for the main part of the podcast, but, um, let's go ahead and, um, give a big thanks to our partner. So first off, I, I do want to mention the Patreon group guys. It is live now. Um, and I fixed the URL so you can search it and all that. It's patreon.com, patreon.com, um, slash duck and chronicles and super excited. Actually had the first member join for the elite ultimate duck hunter um tier and i'm super excited for uh those um monthly live stream um not live stream monthly live chat uh meetings where we're going to go over all the duck hunting stuff super limited um and then i do have the exclusive content for uh the rest of the patreon group um not to mention we will will be continuing on with a hunt giveaway um for the duck gun chronicles channel and duck gun podcast for next year all you got to do is be part of the patreon and you'll be entered into that and uh, i'm super excited about um where we're going to go and what we're going to do on that one so um also big thanks to our partners over at onyx as onyx is a great solution for the duck hunters um, from your mapping to your pinning to finding new locations to hunt. It's been a, a game changer. I know people say that all the time, but it's literally been a game changer for me. Um, having that in the palm of my hands, knocking on doors, getting yeses, getting permissions. Um, you do get some no's too. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You get a lot of no's, probably no, more no's than yeses, but um, I've definitely been able to get on more waterfowl because of it over the last few years where I've been avidly using Onyx. So check them out, guys. You won't regret it. Also like to give a big thanks to Final Approach. Guys, Final Approach is the one-stop shop for the duck hunter. They have waders. They have camo. They have decoys. All the awesome gear that you could desire as a duck hunter. Uh, one of my favorite things this year was the waterfowl backpack. Um, I used it in a lot of my walk-in hunts. It has a uh, 
gun caddy where you can attach your gun to the side of the bag. Um, has tons of storage. You throw it on like a backpack. It's got the hiking strap so you can cinch it down um, and wear it comfortably on those long hunts. Um, so check them out, guys. Uh, Banded. Oh, wow. Wow. FABrand.com. Alrighty. And continuing on. Continuing on, um, also like to give a big thanks to Motion Ducks, guys. Motion Ducks is the jerk rig solution. It's a jerk rig on steroids. Um, I went to the low, the small, low number of ducks, small spread. Many times this year we had many hunts where it was a clear bluebird day, no wind, calm, and we just can't run a big spread in that. The birds are going to notice that something's not right, and they're not going to finish. It's just It just doesn't happen. As many times times as I want to try to hunt that way, it just doesn't work. So um, you got to have motion in your set, and there's nothing better to do that than using the Motion Ducks decoy spreader. So check them out, guys. Um, use code DuckGun2020 over there and get your discount. Alrighty, let's go ahead and um, get Ben in here and jump on in today's podcast. Alrighty, fellas, I'm doing the edit for the podcast right now, and I just wanted to mention something to make you guys aware so you kind of understand what's going on. Um, but during the recording of this, Ben's laptop fan kind of comes on. You can hear it buzzing in the background. So thanks for bearing with us on that. Did my best to uh, do whatever I could to the audio. Um, I do think this is a, a super interesting, super important topic. Um, so even with uh, the less than ideal audio in some spots uh i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and release this podcast but uh, like i said without further ado alrighty, folks i have been on the line here with me how you doing tonight ben i'm doing great um definitely uh, excited to have you on here and and to talk about um some of the research and and all that that, that goes on behind it and um you know uh first the first thought i had when i read it kind of alarm bells going off i don't know if i'm uh if i'm uh overreacting to what i read or if it's uh, uh more to it but uh we'll definitely uh get to the bottom of <laughs> maybe not the bottom of it but we'll we'll definitely have a better idea hearing um what you have to say about it so um let's go ahead and start with a little bit of introduction for you so um can you go ahead and introduce yourself somewhat Sure. My name is Ben Lukanen. I'm a PhD student and an employee at Michigan State University, and I'm working on a research project with a big group of partners across the Great Lakes region to learn more about Great Lakes mallards and why the population has declined over the last couple of decades. Awesome. Definitely, uh, you know, uh, I, I, honestly, I'd hope you're doing a research for the opposite reason, but... Um, <laughs> You know, that's uh, that's not the case. So, um, you know, a little bit of an unfortunate topic and one I've kind of wondered myself um, over the, the last few years. You know, I hear it from a lot of old timers more than myself, um, you know, not being having been around as long. You know, I, I got some buddies who've hunted in Michigan for a long time. And um, to me, you know, it, it, you know, it's uh, maybe not as obvious that something has changed Um compared to them when they've they've uh lived through the change so um, right yeah so you, you've got a few uh um, articles out there that I, that i've read um you know you shared some of those over over uh email and and i've seen them in uh, facebook groups as well but um like i said a little bit of uh, alarm bells um going off 
on some of those. So um, let's let's dive on into it. So uh, go yeah, ahead. So, so maybe a, a logical place to start is just a little bit of background information on you know what what these different mallard populations are and how they're they're managed and you know what what we see in terms of mallard numbers. So thinking really broadly at the scale of North America, there are three main mallard stocks or populations. So you have your eastern mallards in the Atlantic flyway. There's mid-continent mallards, which are nesting and primarily using the Mississippi and central flyways. And then there's your western mallards in the Pacific flyway. So when we're talking about Great Lakes mallards, um, those are mallards that are nesting in primarily in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And so they're surveyed every spring with aerial surveys during the breeding season, and they're managed as part of the larger mid-continent population. And historically, both the large mid-continent population and Great Lakes mallards tracked one another. So those, the changes in, in those populations neared one another, and in the early 2000s, both declined. But after that, mid-continent mallards really increased and abundance of Great Lakes mallards remained low. And so, for example, in 1998, across Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, we had an estimated 1.1 million mallards. And by 2019, that was down 700,000. And so the bottom line is that, you know, state and federal wildlife managers are not really sure why population has declined. And that's where this research comes in to hopefully answer that question. So when they're uh, when they're grabbing that data, um, is that mostly from the the aerial surveys that they're um, conducting to to get those numbers? Yeah. So each state agency, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota's DNRs, each conduct an aerial survey during the spring. So I'm most familiar with Michigan's, um, but they're all they're all similar and they follow Fish and Wildlife Service protocols. So there's transects that go across the state and they fly uh, fixed wing aircraft really low and um, count ducks in the transect and you make some assumptions about um, you know ducks you're missing and um, calculate a correction factor and extrapolate that density across the state to get an estimate of, of how many breeding birds are in the population so it you know by by uh, following that um, same strategy year after year it should there should be no reason that that data is wrong you know as far as um, the lower number. Yeah, there, there's one caveat maybe to mention, and at least anecdotally among um, agency managers, is there seems to be a, a shift in um, the number of mallards that are using urban areas, particularly during the breeding period, but also just throughout the year. And so one of the, one of the things to keep in mind is that these aerial surveys are not really designed to count ducks in, in large cities. You know, you can't can't really fly a plane low um, and slow over large cities to, to count some of these birds. So that's one one area that maybe the surveys need to be updated for. And that's one of the things that we're looking at with this study is to see, you know, are these mallards that are using urban areas behaving differently than your typical mallards out in rural wetlands? Definitely, definitely. So that's a that's that's definitely an interesting point as well. But um, like you said, it doesn't seem like an, an easy solution. Whereas, like over a wetland, you could just fly a plane. Um, you know, I know that uh, there's certain places that I go, urban areas, um, where you do see a lot of waterfowl. So it's like you know, are you going to send somebody to all those areas to count, or 
Uh, it just seems right. uh, definitely uh, not as intuitive as, as going out in those wetlands and, and counting <laughs> with your aerial survey. Yep, for sure. So one thing, uh, one topic I wanted uh, to jump on uh, would be um, the hybridization um, and uh, maybe your thoughts on, on how that plays into uh, the reduction of mallards. So, I mean, I guess before we jump into that, I mean, is it your opinion that the, that there is actually a, a large decrease in the mallard population in the Great Lakes region? Yeah, I don't, I don't have any reason not to, to trust these surveys. They've been statistically designed and they've been conduct, conducted the same way, you know, over the course of, um, over two decades in the case of Great Lakes and even longer um, out in the Prairie Palo region for the, the bulk of the mid kind of population. So, so yeah, I think there's definitely a, a decrease in the mallard population. Okay. And then moving on to, to the hybridization, you want to kind of cut into that one a little bit? Yeah, so this is maybe going to take quite a bit of, of explanation and background information. So, I think it makes sense to maybe start from the beginning and provide a little bit of historical perspective and then that'll maybe make our our results um, a little bit easier to understand for in terms of what we're seeing now. So if you go way back to before European settlement in the eastern part of North America, so east of the Mississippi, as best we can tell from early accounts, black ducks were actually the most abundant duck. And after, um, you know, settlers moved in and started clearing the forest, that really opened up things um, for mallards. You know, mallards are more adapted to open prairie areas, and that's where they do best. And so mallards really moved into East and North America then. And at the same time, you know, we had market hunting, and just across the, the continent, duck populations were declining. And so we got to a point where duck populations were pretty low in the early 1920s. And to, to kind of combat that, state, federal, and private organizations began to release domestic mallards. And they, they got these domestic mallards, as best we can tell, primarily from European stocks. So in Europe, they, you know, mallards are, are distributed across the entire northern hemisphere. So in Europe, in Europe, they were a bit of ahead of us, and they domesticated mallards and um, got a, um, I guess you could say, a breed of mallard that they developed um, for release on these shooting shooting preserves um, and that sort of thing. And so in the 1920s, um, in primarily in the Atlantic Flyway in eastern North America. Um, these game farm mallards started to be re- to be released, and we're not talking just a few. We're talking pretty large numbers, as best we can tell from estimates. Um, in most years, there were over 500,000 released annually. Oh wow! And you know th- this has been going on, you know, now close to 100 years, and so we've had a substantial influx of these um, domestic game farm mallards, um, primarily in the Atlantic Flyway, but some were released in the Mississippi Flyway as well. And we're just now beginning to see consequences of that genetically. Um, In the last few years, some studies um, by one of our partners at the University of Texas, El Paso, Dr. Phil Lavretsky, 
was in investigating the genetics of black ducks in the Atlantic Flyway and discovered that mallards have these different genetic signatures and there's been substantial um, hybridization and integration of these domestic mallard genes with wild mallards and it's likely creating problems in the Atlantic Flyway where the decline in mallards has been even more substantial than here in the Great Lakes. You know, these game farm mallards were artificially selected, raised in captivity, so they presumably don't have the same survival instincts or migration instincts as wild birds. And in, in captivity, these game farm mallards don't really incubate nests. They um, essentially lay a bunch of eggs, which are then collected by the farm managers and put in an incubator. So that they also likely don't have the same, um, you know, nesting and maternal instincts that wild birds do. And so that's one of the things that we're, that we're investigating with this study. And so far we found a surprising number of um, these hybrids in the Mississippi Flyway here in the Great Lakes as well, even though the bulk of these releases have occurred in the Atlantic Flyway. So there's presumably some exchange of genetic information um, you know, hybridization and movements of birds between these flyways. Is that all I'm making sense for you so far? You got, uh, got definitely, yeah, definitely. Uh, it doesn't sound great to be honest. Um, you know, uh, I do have some questions, uh, from, from all that, you know, um, one of the questions is you, you kind of talked about from the Mississippi to, or from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, it's kind of spreading westward. Uh, is there a chance that it keeps continuing that, uh, that trajectory kind of, uh, I mean, some of Mississippi flyaway birds uh, go into the prairie pothole region, breeding, uh, they go down uh, mid-continental, uh, and, and then it continues westward. Uh, is there a chance of that, or is that uh, more far-fetched that the, the, the genes of the um, farm ducks, the wild farm ducks, is that what you called them? Um, I, I prefer to call them game farm. Game farm. Ballards. Okay. Yep. <laughs> That's a little less confusing. Game farm mallards. So is there a chance of that spreading westward? Yeah, that's certainly a concern. And some of the work by Dr. Levetsky suggests that the Atlantic flyway is really kind of the epicenter. So um, there's widespread um, intergression there. The Mississippi flyway and Great Lakes region is kind of an intermediate area. But once you get west of Mississippi River, um, so, you know, mallards in the central um, Pacific um, flyways, those birds are largely still wild, and that's really the, the largest breeding population of mallards on the continent. So we, we are definitely seeing these, um, these, these hybrids moving west, but given the, the large population size of, of mid-continent birds, they should be able to at least withstand that for a while. Um, the question is, you know, if this continues on, um, you know, what are, what are, what are the impacts if, if we continue to release, um, large numbers of, of game farm birds. So if, uh, if, if there was some, um, federal law passed today that, that banned the, um, releasing of the game bird, mallards into um the wild population just i mean uh would that be enough to kind of curb this or, or is uh it's kind of like uh pandora's box and once it's open you can't really you know, put it back in 
Yeah, that's, that's a great, great question. As, as best we can tell, um, it's, it's certainly not too late for mallards west of the Mississippi River. And even in the Great Lakes region, we, we likely still have enough pure wild um, mallards in the population that if we stopped releases, we could likely, you know, mallards essentially would themselves breed out those, those, um, those domestic hybrid traits. But that's really, you know, not a certainty in the Atlantic Flyway where at least in the U.S. portion, you have about a 90% chance of encountering a game farm hybrid. So only about 10% of the birds are, are wild. So with their inability to, um, I mean, necessarily survive in the wild and, and uh, breed, I guess the biggest problem is they're going to they're gonna continue to breed with the wild mallards. Um, but essentially, if you stopped it, is there a chance that they would just kind of uh, <laughs> die off over time? Um, I, I'm honest, that'd be a 90% of the mallard population would be um, pretty stark if, if they was, were all to die off. But um, it does seem like a, an issue with not a great solution any way you look at it, especially for the Atlantic Flyway. Yeah. Um, so another thing you touched on, they kind of move different. Um, you know, as hunters, um, a, a lot of us duck hunters uh, pay pretty close attention to the migration every year. Um, and one thing we're hearing from a lot of southern hunters, especially in some of the, you know, some of the places that, you know, are the heart of duck hunting traditionally, like Mississippi and um, Louisiana and, and Arkansas and those places. Um, one one uh, one thing they're saying, especially the further south south you get, is that uh, they're not getting um, the same migrations that um, hunters that have come before them have seen um, without with these hybrids being part of the the flyway is that a, uh, possibly a contributing factor to that yeah that's one of the things that we're looking at with, with this study so what we've been doing is capturing mallards and putting uh, miniature gps transmitters on them in addition to banding them so those transmitters are a lot like the gps in your smartphone they take locations pretty frequently typically about every 30 minutes and store them on board. And as long as they have adequate cell coverage, they upload those locations to an online database every day. So I can pretty much monitor what these birds are doing in real time. So we started capturing birds and putting transmitters on in spring of 2021. And we're marking birds across uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. So really broad geographic distribution across all those states, and we're catching mallards in both urban and rural areas. And for all those birds that we mark with transmitters, we take a blood sample, and we send those off to Dr. Lavretsky, and he's able to um, run an analysis and determine whether those birds are pure wild mallards or if they're um, you know, hybrid between a wild and a game farm mallard. And so from all that, we're able to look at, you know, relate movements of the birds to their their genotype. And what we're finding on a local movement scale so far is that mallards that are about less than, you know, about 65% wild. So should back up a little bit. For each bird, we're able to look at what proportion of the bird's genome aligns with a wild mallard or with one of these game farm mallards. And so the birds that are 
about 65% wild or above are moving around like we would expect wild birds to. But those that are below that level are moving around um, quite a bit less. They're pretty sedentary and their daily movement distance on average is about half as much as what they are for wild birds. So we are seeing these these game farm mallard hybrids moving less on a local scale. And then on a migratory scale, I think it's a little bit too early to say. And, you know, there we're seeing a lot of individual variation. There's, you know, a lot more that goes into uh, whether or not a bird migrates than just genotype, right? There's, there's weather factors. There's um, even habitat factors. And so we're seeing a lot of individual variation and, you know, differences in individual decision-making. And, you know, one example of that might be you know, we have a pure wild mallard that decides to spend the winter in an urban area where they might be getting fed by, by humans. There's probably some thermal benefits of doing so. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated than, than just um, genetics in terms of what makes a bird migrate. But I'll say, say one last thing and get a chance to ask me a question. And um, It does seem that most of our birds, in fact, none of our birds that we put transmitters on have gone farther south than about the latitude of southern Tennessee. So if you're a duck hunter in the deep south and you like to, to shoot mallards, um, it's, not, it's not a great situation if you're relying on mallards from the Great Lakes to make it that far south. And, you know, that's, that's probably a combination of a lot of things. Um, maybe principally of which has been a changing climate and generally milder winters up here in the north. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely some um, interesting data there. And, and uh, too, that is that is surprising for me um, to hear that they haven't been further south than, than southern Tennessee on, on the ones that you have um, GPS tracked. And you said, what, it's uh, around 500 that you have? Yeah, so... Like I said, we started in spring of 2021, and we've been marking birds in the spring just prior to breeding, but also during what we call the traditional preseason banding period. So when, when most ducks get banded is July through August, um, or excuse me, July through September. And so we're marking mallards during both those time periods, and over the last two years, we've marked 435 birds with GPS transmitters across those five states. And have you had a chance yet to see, as far as uh, when they come back, um, the ones that you've GPS tracked? Um, like one thing you mentioned, too, is having milder um, winters. Um, and, and, two, we've also had drier years here um, over the, the, the recent years. Um, you know, is there a chance that some of these Great Lake region mallards are um, nesting further north? Yeah, it's a really great question. That was one of the... One of the hypotheses, one of the things we wanted to look at before we started the study was, you know, one of the ways we could be losing mallards from the Great Lakes is if birds that are hatched here, particularly if hens that are hatched here, if they're leaving to nest in other areas, you know, farther north, like in the Hudson Bay Lowlands, for example, or farther north and west out on the prairies. And so that's something that we can definitely look at with these transmitters and what we're finding so far is that hen mallards have very high fidelity or a very high probability of either staying in or returning to the Great Lakes region. 
So based on our data so far, I don't think that the issue is that we're, we're losing birds from the Great Lakes that are choosing to nest in, in other areas. Mm. So if, if that's the case, um, <laughs> that's honestly a, a, a um, I don't know if you can call it a bad conclusion. <laughs> uh, that's not, not the right wording, but you know, it's not great, great news to hear that, uh, the birds aren't somewhere else. They're just actually no longer here. Right. That's the, the outcome of that. So, um, maybe I've missed it in, in what you said. Where, like, where are those birds? Are they just, they're, they're not able to breed well enough. I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. So in, in terms of fidelity, you know, most of the, in fact, most of the knowledge that we put transmitters on don't choose to migrate outside of the Great Lakes region. You know, they might go just as far south as they have to to find open water and to have ag fields that aren't, aren't covered with snow. A lot like you would expect Canada geese to migrate, kind of, um, rather than that they're obligated to migrate, they really only migrate if, you know, if they have to. So most of the mountains we put transmitters on choose to spend the winter you know, in southern Michigan, southern Wisconsin, or in those southern three states, Illinois, India, and Ohio. And really it's the minority of our sample that are leaving the Great Lakes region to winter, um, you know, in areas like the lower Mississippi Alluvial Valley. That is, uh, that is uh, something I didn't know. So that's, um, that's super interesting, honestly. Um, how, do they have um, a guess as to why? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that Prairie Pothole region um, ducks that breed there uh, migrate all the way down, or is that uh, is that not um, the case? Yeah, there's some other transmitter studies going on um, down south, in, including some you know, genetic work by Dr. Lebretsky that suggests that most of the mallards that um, are wintering in the lower Mississippi Valley are primarily prairie pothole birds. So, you know, from the, the U.S. and Canadian prairies. So those ducks, prairie pothole, all the way down to the Gulf Coast, they're migrating all that way um, out of um, instinct. And Great Lake ducks just don't migrate the same. Yes, that, that's what we're seeing. That is, uh, hmm. And do they believe that hybridization has anything to do with that? Well, we're really, it's really just been in the last few years that you know we've identified the relatively large proportion of hybrids i'm not sure if i if i mentioned it or not but you know we only have we only have the results from our first first year sample which is 194 birds across the great lakes but um 59 were hybrids and only 41 percent were wild birds you know it's really been just in the last few years that we've discovered the the widespread, you know, proportion of hybrid birds in the Great Lakes. And so we really don't know yet what contribution genetics has versus what contribution other factors like climate and weather might have. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I think I'm running around in circles a little bit, but um, it's, all, it's just from my, my uh, shock on, on some of these uh, answers you're giving me. So um, definitely uh, uh, some new information. Uh, when I thought I had a lot of it figured out. So um, one thing I did want to touch on, and, um, you know, I haven't paid too close attention to this. Maybe maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, but it's within the last decade, um, 
you know, a lot of people, similar situation, um, a lot of fly anglers uh, that were after Great Lake steelhead and, and other fish and those fisheries were real worried about the stocking practices and having the same thing where it uh, um, is not great for uh, the gene pool for um, these fish to act wild and natural um, and survive. Um, is that something that uh, has been looked at um, kind of in parallel with uh, something that seems pretty similar to that? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. Um, I'm not a fisheries biologist by any means, and I'm just not real familiar with that literature. But um, generally what what I've read and have heard is, you know, anytime you take an animal into captivity and you, you know, you produce a few generations in captivity and then you release that animal, it's, it's no longer the same, the same thing, you know. So there, I think there's definitely concerns, you know, not just among anglers, but, you know, among, um, you know, universities and agencies as well that, you know, stocking fish could have, you know, similar implications in terms of, you know, reducing genetic diversity and in introducing um, potentially maladaptive genetic traits in, in, you know, trout and salmon as well. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds probably uh, like a, a pretty fair take on that for sure. Um, you know, is it, uh, is it too soon to, to sound the alarm, by, uh, alarm bells or do we need to wait to the end of your, your guys study? Um, I don't know if we should be sounding the alarm bells quite yet. We, we definitely want to wait till the end of the study before we draw, you know, any final conclusions. We've, we've collected a lot of data so far. You know, we've already accumulated almost two and a half million GPS locations from the transmitters that we have out. But we still have, we're still waiting on the genetic results from this last year's sample, and we're going to be marking another sample of about 100 to 130 birds this year. So we still have a lot of data to collect and analyze. Um, so I, I definitely don't want to draw any, any conclusions yet, but I definitely think that managers and duck hunters too should um, be should be aware and should be paying attention to this issue of mallard hybridization. Definitely, definitely. And I can say just from uh, the the general outtake of it, I am I am concerned, and I and I'll definitely be paying attention to to kind of what you guys find as as the results come in. Um, you know, I, I think I, I asked a lot of questions about the Great Lakes region. Um, you know, is there anything that I missed kind of on the Atlantic flyway side of, of it as far as like um, what I've been paying attention to what you're, with the information you're sharing? I'm from Indiana. I hunt Michigan a lot. So that one's kind of mm-hmm. that topic is more near and dear to me, the Atlantic flyway. But I know we got a lot of uh, duck hunters out that way. Um, is there is there anything I kind of missed on that side of it? Um. I don't think so. Like, like I said, that that the, the Atlantic flyway, unfortunately for for hunters, there is really the epicenter of this hybridization issue because of just the sheer number of hybrids that have been released there, and you know it's been going on for um, about about a hundred years now, and there are still um, substantial numbers of game farm birds released. Um, and it's not really highly regulated. I mean, really just get kind of bits and pieces of the picture. But as best we can tell, there's still 
each year, every year, 200,000 game farm birds released in the Atlantic Flyway. So, you know, if, if you're if you're hunting mallards there, chances are you're not harvesting um, pure wild birds. Chances are you're encountering um, hybrids. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, you know, this is definitely some uh, some great information you kind of passed along. Um, I'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, taking the time to to – uh, enlighten us on it uh, I, I read the articles but I feel like I you know definitely uh, got a, a lot more information kind of talking to you and asking questions so um, it'll be interesting it, it, you know if if the results of your study come back that um, the releasing of hybrids is bad uh, for our wild duck population like how feasible is it that um, duck hunters and managers will be able to um, uh, can convince our lawmakers to pass something to um, do away with this. That, that's a, a really great, great question. Um, you know, my my role in conducting this study is to identify, you know, what's the problem. You know, what, how is, is hybridization a problem? Are there other factors as well that are a concern? And then to develop some recommendations you know, for state and federal agencies to consider, but it's really up to those agencies, you know, what, what they choose to do with, you know, the results of the study once, once we have it. But, you know, I'm, I'm a duck hunter myself, and I think one of the role that duck hunters can play is, you know, as I mentioned, to stay aware of the issue, and it really comes down to kind of what your, what your philosophy is. Do you want to, you know, have duck populations that are, are wild, and do you want to be harvesting wild birds that you know are self-sustaining on their own or do you want to be in more of a situation like europe is in where it's essentially a put and take program for mallards so i think as duck hunters um, we can be aware of the issue and we can make our our voices and our you know desires heard to the managers definitely definitely and you can think about um not only on that line but uh, you know uh pheasant is a great example of you know we used to have thriving populations um, all around the Midwest, and a lot of those uh, have gone uh, to the wayside for one one reason or not. You know, the only way I can hunt mallard or hunt pheasants rather uh, in Indiana. I mean, there's rare, rare that you find a wild one, but um, you can do put and takes. And and I, I can tell you right now, after hunting both, uh, there's a huge difference between those um, <laughs> dumb pin raised pheasants and, and wild birds. So, um, sure, you know, that's something, especially as duck hunters, you know. Uh, that I'm sure uh, <laughs> we don't want to see, you know, don't want to see uh, the fall of of um, a, a once great population of wild birds. So, alrighty, well, uh, where can people um, follow along to kind of stay aware of these? Where where will these uh, new findings be released? I don't know if you have like a set place. I know uh, multiple of these articles were from different places, so. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, as we, you know, continue to collect more data and get more results, we're going to be developing a plan to share these findings publicly, and it'll probably manifest in either a website and or a social media page. Um, so I, I'd say stay tuned and, and look for those. And um, 
we're planning to have the final results and conclude the study probably by the summer of 2024. So I'd say check back in around that time and I should have um, some concrete concrete findings to share with you. Awesome. Alrighty, Ben. Well, I appreciate you coming on, sharing this information with us. Um, I'll be staying tuned. If you have any, uh, you know, any more articles or anything crazy coming out, uh, I'd be glad to have you back on if you got the time. So, um, any any closing words? No, um, I, that sounds good to me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and share more about the research, and hope that um, waterfowl hunters will find it interesting. Definitely. Alrighty, folks, I'm Jordan from Duck and Chronicles, and we'll see you guys on the next one.